everyone. As I was hearing uh, the text read, I was doing the math and realized when I preached last, I preached 40 minutes on three verses. And so this is 30 verses, so you can do the math, how much time I have. <laughs> oh, yeah. But uh, in all seriousness, welcome back after Christmas uh, from all the food, the festivities, and all the presents. I hope your gatherings were sweet and memorable in very good ways um, and full of Christ, and that you come back from, I'm guessing, a very full weekend, uh, ready and prepared to freshly hear God's word. Um, as you notice, we're diving back into Acts, and if you've been here the last few weeks, it probably feels somewhat abrupt to just dive right back into this series. Uh, we spent the entire entirety of Advent working through the prologue of John's Gospel, and I think going back to Acts will feel like quite a shift in pace. Uh, but as I prepared the sermon, I became increasingly thankful for the time that we had in John, uh, even in setting up for this sermon. Uh, I think it sets us up so well to rejoice in the main point of the text, the main point of the text before us, that the apostles boldly teach and preach the gospel of Jesus. If we're to preach and teach the gospel, we need reminders of what the content of the gospel is. Amen? And... It was really sweet to spend so much time in the glorious, soaring, exalted truths that are in John's gospel, and then these truths become the content for the apostles' message in the book of Acts. But I'm also thankful to preach this text on the heels of John, because I think I realize how heavy this theme and application can be. Um, just to preach and teach the gospel with boldness. I think if, if I would ask for a show of hands and just ask the room, um, do you feel timid in evangelism? Right? Do you feel weak in witnessing? Do you feel discouraged in sharing the gospel? I'm assuming many would answer in the affirmative. And understanding that, I am very glad that we spent five weeks just soaking in the gospel. Right, that Jesus is the word, that Jesus is the light, that Jesus is the life. Right? That our salvation hinges not upon how bold we are in evangelism, right? Not upon how many souls we lead to Christ, but on the fact that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when we believed, he gave us the right to become children of God. What are we going to say to these things? God is for us who can be against us. The sweetness of the gospel is the greatest catalyst to boldness in evangelism. I pray that our time in John has freshened your heart to hear what God has for us today from his word. And so let's go to him together and ask that he meets us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love your gospel. We love what the Christmas season is pausing and set up to reflect on, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that Jesus has come and that there is life in his name. Oh, thank you for that sweet gospel. I pray that, that your gospel would have such fruit in the hearts of your people today. Would it be sweet to them? Would it give them hope even as they hear a challenging word? Lord, we also know that your word tells us how will they call on him and whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? 
How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I pray that through this message, you would equip your people to faithfully be the beautiful feet that bring good news. Do this for your name's sake, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we get into the text, I want to do this and see this through four main sections. Okay, so the four main section, God gives his people microphones. We're familiar with that idea, but God gives his people microphones. God, God's people will face opposition, right? God's people will face opposition, but God's people will be vindicated. God's people will be vindicated and God's people will preach boldly. Okay, God's people will preach boldly. Well, let's start with the first one. God gives his people microphones. Um, by now, this is probably a pretty familiar concept to you uh, in the book of Acts, right? God works a wonder or miracle. He grabs the attention of the world. And then, after the attention is had, the apostles preach the gospel, right? So that is to say the miracles that God is working is God giving his apostles a microphone to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think that's what's happening in verses 12 through 16, right? Verse 12, through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. Then verse 15, they brought the sick out into the streets. They laid them on beds and couches that at last, the sh at least the shadow of Peter passing might fall on some of them. And then 16, also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirit, and they were all healed. I think you can imagine what a vivid picture that would be. Uh, the beds of the old and the young, rich, poor, male and female, just lining the streets of Jerusalem, right? Clambering to get into the path of an apostle, just with the hope, right, in the text. Just with the hope that the shadow of Peter passing by may fall upon them, right? And then maybe, just maybe, their sickness would be healed. I think what a sight to behold. Now notice that it doesn't actually tell us in verse 15 that Peter's shadow was healing people. But what is very obvious is that God was working incredible marvels. And the people had seen so much power connected to the apostles that they started believing they only needed to be touched by Peter's shadow to be healed. The people are noticing. With the, and therefore the apostles are getting a microphone. Then in the middle of these verses, 12 through 16, there's a general summary of what's happening. I'll just read that. Starting in the latter half of verse 12, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest dared join them. But the people esteemed them highly, and believers were increasingly added to their numbers, both multitudes of both men and women. This spectacle is uh, creating some interesting effects, right? So on the one hand, the people are esteeming, highly esteeming them. They're bringing their sick to them. And ultimately, the Lord is adding to their number. But then, on the other hand, the people are scared, right? It says they're scared to join them. None of the rest dared to join them. And I'm guessing this is probably for multiple reasons, okay? One, as we read on, we'll see that you can get in trouble with the authorities, so this would be an obvious fear, right? They're afraid of the authorities. But then, too, when we look at the immediate context, remember Ananias and Sapphira. Remember that story? So to bring to your mind what we were in, it feels like about a month and a half ago, 
this couple named Ananias and Sapphira brought things, brought uh, finances to the apostles, and they lied about what they were actually bringing. And then you remember that Peter says, you have not lied to man, but you have lied to God, and God strikes them down. Right? He strikes them down because basically they were putting on a facade of that they were bringing it all when they actually were not. And the summary of that account is verse 11, great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. So I think this is one of the main reasons why people are scared to join them. Yes, the people are drawn to the healings and to the love, right? Perhaps they even esteemed their message, but they wanted to keep their distance. There was a certain power and authority in the church, especially sown in the accounts of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, one preacher, Vance Havner, said it like this, Here is the church in the full bloom of her power, a spiritful church, a wonder-working church, but then a church that stirred up the devil. Church that stirred up the devil. Now I think this leads naturally to the second point, that God's people will face opposition. Right? So the church was working great wonders, it was preaching great mysteries, but you could say they were stirring up a little too much that grand city of Jerusalem. A little too much for the authorities. And so this happens, verses 17 through 18. Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. And they laid their hands on the apostles and they put them in the common prison. The Supreme Court of Jerusalem, that's who these guys basically consist, they rise up, they were filled with jealousy and anger, probably because the apostles were taking uh, the, the popularity that they wanted. And so they arrested the apostles and they locked them up. They just took them and they locked them up in the common prison. Uh, maybe you've noticed that the apostles being arrested is becoming a theme in the book of Acts. I was wrestling with just maybe calling the title of the sermon, the apostles arrested dot 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 again. Right? It, just, it just seems like they keep being arrested and arrested and arrested. But it gets worse. There's even another arrest in this chapter. Um, I'll fill in the details more later, but the apostles are miraculously released then, right after being arrested in verses 19 through 20. Basically, as soon as they're released again, they go and start preaching in the temple, verse 21, and then they're arrested a second time. They're arrested again, and they're brought before the council, which again, as I said, is the Supreme Court of Jerusalem. Again, the point that I think Luke is making here is that the people of God will face opposition, and this is exactly what's happening. They're being arrested for preaching the gospel. Uh, look at the words of the high priest in verse 28. Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and you intend to bring, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, this isn't the first, like I said, this is not the first reference to arrest in the book of Acts. And what the high priest is referencing here is in Acts 4, the high priest had arrested them and told them, you should not be preaching and teaching in his name, right? And then they release him. The high priest is saying, we literally told you not to do this, and here you are doing it again. 
We told you not to do this, but here you are doing it again. And then he adds this in 28b. And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Right? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So he highlights two things that annoys him. On the one hand, he was annoyed that they were blaming the council and the high priest for the death of Jesus Christ, right? And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Uh, as I meditated on this, I found this point particularly interesting because if you actually think about it, they had wanted this man's blood on them. Um, if you remember during Christ's passion, specifically in the book of Matthew, remember that account where uh, Pilate takes the, the basin and he washes his hands and says, I don't want this, this, this man's blood upon me. Do you remember their response? This man's, his blood be on us and on our children, he cri they cried. The people. And they were the ones who incited the crowd to cry that. They are responsible for his blood. They actually are, and they actually even asked for it. But, unlike the apostles, these guys are living out of fear of men, because now it isn't exactly popular to uh, be known as the murder of Christ. And so now they want to disappear from the spotlight. You intended to bring this, you want to bring this man's blood on us. Well, actually, you intended it yourself. And you did kill this man. Now, while that's an important point, I don't think it's the main reason he's mad. Uh, the main reason he's mad, I think, is indicated by what he says next. You have filled, or what he said first, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. In other words, you just won't stop preaching and teaching the gospel. You guys won't shut up. You, we keep telling you, but you keep preaching and teaching Christ. They're filling Jerusalem with the doctrine, with the gospel. And I think this is what the leaders hate. The sub-point that we're covering now is that God's people face opposition. And they're facing opposition because they're teaching and preaching the gospel. This is a reality in the early church. And you'll see when we get to Acts, this does not change. I mean, if you pay attention in the coming months, almost every chapter of the book of Acts has some type of opposition to the ministry of God and of the gospel. Opposition is just a theme of the early church. And this is assumed of Christianity. Remember, even from John, Christ is the light of the world. And the world hates the light, right? Like a flashlight in the eyes. It's like, shut it off, shut it off. We don't want it. We don't want it. The gospel message which reveals the darkness is despised by the world and therefore will be opposed. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Brothers and sisters, God gives his people microphones to teach and to preach. And when we do and obey, we will face opposition. And we need to have it as an expectation. That's why Peter said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening to you. Do not be surprised. It should be strange if we don't face opposition when we share the gospel. 
um, an author, an author I really like uh, named Nick Ripkin. He uh, he spent years interviewing thousands of persecuted church members from around the world, from the underground church. And in one particular instance, he was meeting with some Russian pastors and lay leaders who had served under the who had served under the Soviet rule, right under the communist regime. And he tells that as he was hearing their stories, he was just overwhelmed by the incredible stories of faith and endurance. Uh, under the heavy persecution by the Soviets. Um, and he said, he said, at one, he told the story that at one point he was so overwhelmed, he just burst out. Why haven't you written these stories down? Where are the books that chronicle your faith and your, and your persecution? Why have you not shared these lessons learned? He was just like, why, why have you not shared these? And he said he was met with this confused silence. They were just confused why he would say that. And then one of the pastors asked him, Nick, do you have a son? And he was like, uh, yeah, I do. I have, I have three. And then one of the pastors took him by the arm and led him to the window. And he pointed out the window and he says, Nick, in the morning, do you bring your sons to the window, point out and say, look, look, son, the sun is rising in the east. Look, son, the sun is rising in the east. And Nick said he responded, no, I've never done that. That would be foolish. Right? The sun always rises in the east. And then this is what he said, the pastor said. Nick, that's why we haven't made books and movies out of these stories that you've been hearing. For us, persecution is like the sun coming up in the east. It happens all the time. It's the way things are. There is nothing unusual or unexpected about it. Now, I know we don't suffer persecution, anything like those living under communist Russia. Not even close. But I think the pastor uh, expressed very deeply the uh, reality, that I'm, very well the deep reality I'm trying to get across to you, um, that those who are preaching and teaching and living the gospel of Jesus Christ will face opposition. Like the sun rising in the east every day, those who share the gospel will face opposition. Right? Some of you maybe already experienced this, even this weekend. Do not be surprised when your family members at all the holiday gatherings give opposition to your life and gospel. Do not be surprised when your co-workers grumble against you or when you share with them and they tell you, don't talk anymore about religion. Don't be surprised when your friends are annoyed at you because you're changing and you're getting too religious. You need to be equipped for this. Do not be surprised that the trials, right, the people of God will face persecution, will face opposition. But do not lose hope. Right? Do not lose hope because God's people, though they face opposition, they will be vindicated. And that's the third point. God's people will be vindicated. Um, that is vindicated, meaning they will be shown and proven to be right and justified. The message they preach will be shown and proven to be right and to be justified, either in this life or in the life to come. Now, I say vindicated, and I highlight this because, well, I think it's an important part of the chapter, but also because it's really important for us to remember this. 
Because if any of you have ever experienced rejection or mocking, like, you know, you know the struggle and the pain of that, like how much it hurts, even the shame, the feelings of shame that you can feel when you're opposed. Again, maybe you felt it over the weekend. And I think the reason that the Bible has to keep telling us to endure under persecution, to endure in the face of opposition, to endure when the world mocks our gospel or when our family and friends abandon us is because it hurts. To endure implies that it hurts. It's hard to endure. But it calls us to endure because what we believe and preach is true. Because what we believe and teach is, pr- is true and God will vindicate us either in this life or ultimately in the life to come. He will vindicate his message. He will vindicate his people. In this case, in our text, the vindication happens almost immediately. Right? So the apostles are thrown in prison by the Sadducees, by the council, right? so the Supreme Court of Jerusalem. And almost immediately what happens next is God miraculously frees them to go with the command to go and preach the gospel. The Sadducees are telling the apostles, don't preach this message, right? It's not true. Stop preaching it. So they lock them up to make the point. But God then opens the doors and tells them, no, go and preach all the words of this life. By freeing them for the purpose of spreading the very gospel the authorities were trying to quell, God is putting his perfect stamp of approval on their message. He's vindicating their message. And I actually found even a particular irony to this vindication as well. In verse 17, it says the Sadducees were the main responsible party for their arrest. Acts 23.8 tells us that the Sadducees denied both the resurrection and the existence of angels. They didn't believe in that. So I love how God frees these guys. Okay? They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the resurrection. All right? Verse 19, but at night, an angel of the Lord. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. You don't believe in angels. You don't believe in resurrection. The way God frees them, he sends an angel to open the doors with a command, go and preach all the words of this life, the resurrection life. What a gospel vindication. Vindication with an exclamation point. Now, this isn't the only place, I think, where the uh, gospel message is vindicated in our text. Uh, The other place, I think it is, is in verses 33 through 39, Gamaliel's advice to the council. So, to get our bearing again, the apostles were arrested the first time. Right? They're thrown into prison. That night, they're freed by an angel. In the morning, they go and they're preaching the gospel, right, in the temple. They're arrested a second time, peacefully. They're brought before the council. They receive that accusation from the, from the high priest. And then, I'll, I'll fill this out later, but in response, Peter preaches this intense gospel to them, which really winds up the council. They did not like what he said. 
fact, they wanted to, they got to a place where they just wanted to kill him. That's the context for verses 33 through 39. And to summarize those verses, a respected leader of the council sees that they're about to kill these guys. And so he has the apostles sent out, and he stands up, and he stops the council from killing the apostles. Now his argument for letting them be is essentially to let God decide their fate. right? Let God decide their fate. He reminds the council of a few past failed revolutionaries. And he said, well, if the Christian movement spearheaded by the Gospels, if not of God, it will fail. But if it is of God, then he says this, 39. If it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you be found to fight against God. In other words, he's saying, let's free these guys and let God decide their fate. If it's of God, it will survive and we will be fools for opposing it. If it isn't, it will fail. Now, as I was wrestling with that, from a general standpoint, um, just from a general point, I don't think we can build our lives upon Gamaliel's point there. Um, many religious movements and Christian movements have flourished for a season. And just because something does well on earth does not mean that it's of God. Fair enough? But with that said, I think it's very obviously purposeful that Luke included such a detailed account of what Gamaliel said. And I think his purpose is to highlight that Gamaliel's words would eventually give further vindication to the gospel message. And that the Christian movement, right? In other words, if you're a reader of Acts, you're going to read through this. You would read this account of where Gamaliel talks about this. And then you would have in your mind, okay, so if it's of God, it'll keep going. By the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, you're seeing, well, the Christian church has not been stopped. It has not been overcome. It's keeping, it's, it's continued to grow. Therefore, you're saying, okay, Gamaliel was right. This is of God. I think this is put in here as another further vindication of the gospel and his church. Now, even as we look at these examples, summary on this section, uh, we must remember that we will not always be freed from prison. There are many godly brothers and sisters around the world right now that are still in prison. Even Paul. Paul spent many, many years in prison and he didn't expect just to be freed. Or even just general that we will receive immediate vindication. Nonetheless, I want you to remember the promise that as you truly live and truly preach the true gospel, you will receive vindication either in this life but ultimately in the life to come. So be encouraged by that. This leads to our fourth point, then, that God's people will preach and teach with boldness. God's people will preach and teach with boldness. Um, even just pointing out examples from the text, it's kind of hard to do because there's just so many examples of it. It's all over this text. Uh, so what I want to do in this section, I just want to point at some of the main sections, the main parts where boldness is being highlighted. Uh, the first clear one is verse 21, right? Verse 21, uh, if you recall, this is immediately following the arrest of the night before, right? So they were arrested, they were cast into prison, then they were released. And I think when we read the release of them, we might be thinking, hey, you've been released, now is your time to flee. Flee to Egypt, flee to the east, flee to the west, get away, right? Now is your chance. 
These guys are probably going to kill you. Now is your chance to get away. But, in obedience to the angel's command, the rising sun doesn't find them with their backs to the holy city, but instead, they are in the midst of the temple. Like, literally, probably the most prominent place in all of Jerusalem, preaching all the words of life. Boldness? Yeah, I think so. Then they're arrested again. They're hauled before the council. And remember the words of the high priest, right? Complaining about this. Did we not strictly command you not to teach in his name? And you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. I think quite the driving question to begin a hearing with. But then listen to the apostles' response. Just listen to how they respond. We, verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered, by hanging him on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. I hope you hear the, I hope you can feel the boldness in that. I think it's an understatement to say that the apostles did not mince words. You could not speak the gospel more clearly in a hostile environment than the way these brothers just did it. If there was ever a moment to just snip out from the gospel some of the more controversial sections, that probably would have been the time. Right then, you know. Just drop the resurrection, drop the fact that they murdered him. Just drop that. But no, listen, listen to what they say. One, we must obey God rather than men. We're not going to obey you. We have to obey God. Two, God raised them up. You don't, but we know you don't believe in the resurrection, but God raised Jesus from the dead, and you need to know that. And you murdered him. You murdered him. That's direct. He's like, you're trying to bring his blood upon us. You murdered him. And you murdered him in the most shameful way you could think of. In the Old Testament, it says it is cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. You thought you were shaming him. But God has exalted him. God has exalted him to his right hand. And get this. He is the prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He is the only one who can do that. And they went on. The angel in verse 20 told the apostle to preach all the words of this life. Not just some of them, right? Not the not just the ones that are palatable to Sadducee sensibilities, but all of them. And the apostles took this serious. They preached all the words of the life. I love uh, a quote from Spurgeon on this. He said this, Dear brethren, it is forbidden us to omit any part of the gospel. I am very glad of it, for if we were permitted, we should sometimes shirk the unpopular parts of it. It's true. Yet surely it would be dangerous to omit any part of the gospel, would it not? It would be like a physician giving a prescription to a dispenser and the dispenser omitting one of the ingredients. He might kill the patient by omission, 
The worst result following the keeping back of any doctrine, we may not see those results, but they will follow. Perhaps only the generation, only the next generation will fully display the mischief done by a truth concealed or denied. It would be a dangerous experiment for any one of us to make. So I say, Amen. They were bold in the whole gospel, and we must realize the danger of omitting any part of it. Finally, after their second release, then, verse 42 sums up just all their boldness in ministry. Verse 42, And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They did not cease. Now they've been warned twice and they even saw they might die from it, but they did not cease. Again, I hope you've seen this overall that God's people will boldly preach and teach the Christ. And I even realize that right now, as I circle back to closing applications, I'm concerned. Uh, I'm concerned of the danger that someone in here may be tempted to think that Christians are saved because they're bold in the gospel, right? That they're bold in Jesus Christ. I've already mentioned that, but I say it again because I think I realize that because I realize that that view is eternally dangerous. Friends, if you have not come to Christ, repented, and believed in him, you cannot earn your way to God by being bold. You cannot earn your way to God. Boldness does not save. Christ does. Christ became a man and came and dwelt among us. He lived the perfect life in our stead. And then he was hung on a tree in our place where he received the punishment that we deserved. But God raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand where he is Lord and Savior forevermore. And he offers repentance and forgiveness to all who come to him. He is the Prince and the Savior. Come to him. Repent of your sins. Believe in his saving power. It is the only way you can be saved. In him was life. Now to those who have believed in the gospel, I think clearly from this text, you are called to be bold in your witness, right? That others may hear this sweet and great news. Even as I say this, I realize I think we can feel overwhelmed by this challenge, feel like boldness is an impossibility. I think we've often felt like we've failed in this. But even understanding that, I, I do hope that I could just, we can, as we circle back in the text and note some of the underpinning convictions uh, that led the apostles to boldness, that you can just be equipped somewhat more to grow in boldness before God. And I, I do pray, I, I encourage you to really note these well, um, and I do pray that God would use these in your life to grow in boldness. So for the first one, I think we have to step back into chapter, chap, into chapter 4, verse 29, uh, because to understand the boldness of chapter 5, you have to understand what happened in chapter 4. Um, contextually, chapter 5 is an obvious overflow of this event in chapter 4. And Pastor Brandon did a wonderful job on preaching it, but it's so significant, again, to understanding our chapter. Uh, I want to take us back there one more time. So if you have your Bible, just flip back one page, Acts chapter 4, and I'm going to start in verse 29, Acts 4, 29. So, 
For the context of what's happening here, the church, uh, in response to the apostles' first rep- the first arrest, had gathered together for a prayer meeting. Okay, so this is the closing remarks of their prayer meeting. Verse twenty-nine. Now, Lord, look on their threats, and grant to your servants that with all boldness, as always, that with all boldness they may speak the word, by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And listen to this. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word with boldness. They spoke the word with boldness. The boldness of chapter 5 was birthed at a prayer meeting. The boldness that we're reading in chapter 5 was birthed in prayer. They're praying for boldness, and they're preaching with boldness. This principle has uh, has so shaped my life. I remember a few years ago, I was at a Bible school in Colorado, and uh, I remember a day I went out to eat with a friend, I think to Burger King, and while we were sitting there, uh, some other, some young men came down and they sat across from us in the restaurant, and uh, my friend was like, well, I'm going to go witness to them. You want to come with? And I didn't. And he got up and he, he went over and he witnessed to them. And I remember feeling like I should go with him and just, just to encourage him, but I didn't. I, I was, I was frankly just terrified of having even just to go with him. I was terrified. I just remember I just sat there. Um, I, I went home that day. I, I was just, I was crushed by that because I had been ashamed of the gospel. I, I remember that. And, I was just so sorrowful of it. And I went to a man, a man named Brandon. He was a mentor there at the time. And I expressed this sorrow to him and how ashamed I felt. Um, and I'll never forget. So one, he ministered to me and said kind of what I've been saying, that you can't be saved by doing this. And he encouraged me with the gospel. But then he opened right to this text. I, it's so vivid. I can still remember where it was. He opened right to this text. And he read the text. And then he asked me, Daniel, do you pray for boldness? I don't think I ever had. I don't think I ever had. And then he laid his hand on me and he poured out his heart for me for boldness. I'll never forget it. It was beautiful. The way he just ministered to my soul. We need that. We need that. And this is not a cliche. If you're struggling, this is, if you're struggling, just pray about it. There's a purposeful connection between prayer and boldness in this text that we cannot miss. It is that which stirs up the boldness. You're struggling with boldness. Have you prayed about it? I would encourage you, add it to your daily prayer list. Really, add it to your daily prayer list. God, grow this in me. Struggling with boldness, confess it to a brother or sister and ask for their pray- prayers. And if someone does that to you, pray over them. Pray for each other. Pray for the church. That we as a church would have boldness. Would not be ashamed of the gospel. Bring up this request in prayer meetings. Let's pray for boldness as a church. The church was bold because they were a praying church. 
church was bold because they were a praying church. Second, I think the church was bold because they knew the gospel would be vindicated. Right? So talk, of course, on that at length, but I think the apostles firsthand got to see their message vindicated, but they also realized the great reality that it would be vindicated in the life to come. We know that this message is eternally true, and though the world mocks, God has exalted Christ to his right hand to be Prince and Savior. And he is coming back, and every, ne every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is coming back. Just remember this, when you are mocked for the gospel, you will one day be fully vindicated by our God. May that encourage your witness. Third, the apostles were bold because they knew who was the ultimate authority. They stood before the Supreme Court of Jerusalem and proclaimed, we ought to obey God rather than men. I remember when we were out in uh, at, down on Capitol Hill, we went there for a conference, and we walked straight down from the church, we were at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and we turned a corner and right around the corner, there was just this massive building. Never seen it before. And I asked Bobby, I'm like, Bobby, what is that? And remember, Bobby, you're like, oh, that's the Supreme Court. And I was astonished by it. It was, it was magnificent. It was really, it was frankly awe-inspiring. Just the, the, this building. Uh, and this is where some of the core, uh, core justice of the land is to happen. But even in the midst of that, even realizing how awe-inspiring that building is, how much impact those decisions have on the country, realizing that those that court is fall, must fall in deference to the high court of heaven. doesn't bear a candle to what God has said. And I think the apostles realized this as they stood before the Supreme Court of Jerusalem. He is the ruler, and they must fall. They should fall in deference to him. Now, do you also remember uh, those, those two ideas that Brandon referenced? The idea of the fear of God and the fear of man, and how they're two opposing forces, right? And how oftentimes our fear of man can transcend our fear of God, right? Our fear of consequences from men often will birth disobedience to God, which is obviously sin. The apostles' response to the authorities is a perfect example of what it looks like to fear God more than man. We ought to obey God rather than men. They honored what the God of heaven had to say more than the council. They honored what the God of heaven had to say more than the council. You fear the Lord, brothers and sisters? Do you fear the Lord? Do you honor his authority and glory so deeply that you would be willing to receive the consequences from the world to obey his holy commands? Oh, may God work that in us. May God work that in you. And then fourth, they are bold because the Spirit bears witness with them. They are bold because the Spirit bears witness with them. Verse 32, And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, who God has given to those who obey him. I think this means that the Holy Spirit is bearing witness in them, right? Giving boldness and clarity to the message. And this is a theme all across the book of Acts. Maybe you've heard it said, but like, 
we shouldn't really be calling it the Acts of the Apostles. We should call this book the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because it is his work. He is the main character in this story. And he's the main character, and I think, in their boldness. And then finally, the closing point, they were bold because they had a clear theology of suffering. Okay? They were bold because they were clear in their theology of suffering. Verse 41, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I think this is a little hard for us to grasp. It's otherworldly. But the apostles understood that God's people will face opposition and often will suffer as a result. Right? They realized that. They were not naive to that. But they also remembered Christ's words. Remember in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' name's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The rejoicing in the face of suffering makes no sense if the world is your home. But if the world is not your home and you live for the next one, you suffer for and with him. With Jesus. He is the prince. He is the Lord. He is the rewarder. The rewarder of the eternity to come. Well, so much more could be said on the, and the theology of suffering. But church, may your understanding of suffering run deep, especially for the name of Christ, so that you would, in the face of grace, great opposition, be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing it is the power of God and the salvation. The apostles were accused of filling Jerusalem with their doctrine. May it be said of us, they're filling peers with their doctrine. They're filling little falls with their doctrine. They won't stop talking about the gospel. They're filling Minnesota with their doctrine. May it be said of their homes, they're filling their homes with their doctrine, with the gospel. May it be said of our lives, their lives are full of Christ. They do not stop preaching and teaching the risen Savior. May his name be glorified. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven again we thank you for your gospel and I thank you for this word before us and the example of the apostles I think almost every person in here feels that we don't, we're not as bold as we ought to be, given how glorious your gospel is and given how needy souls are. Or we confess to not having been bold for your gospel the way we ought to be, to not having loved your glory the way we ought to be, to not having loved souls the way we ought to be. Lord, forgive us for this. Forgive us for this. But then, God, we pray, fill us with your Holy Spirit to preach boldly and with clarity, to be unashamed with the gospel of Christ. Father, may this word encourage your people, not discourage them, but encourage them to step out in faith and in boldness in sharing the gospel with the lost. 
Lord, we long to see your churches full. Fill them up because we are preaching your word. I pray this in Jesus' name.